Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for our Bloomberg Opinion. Right now, we are joined by Admiral James Stravitas, uh, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's retired U.S. Navy Admiral and former military commander of NATO. And we have to talk about the latest issue coming out, a very disturbing issue where reports that Russia is providing bounties to Taliban fighters for American soldiers. And there's absolutely no one better to speak to this issue than Admiral uh, Stavridis. Uh, Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time here. Just give us your sense of what is going on with this story here. Do you give it credence? And if so, what should the response be? Unfortunately, I do give it credence. And of course, I'm, I'm very close to this issue, having commanded that mission in Afghanistan for four years. As you know, Paul, it's a NATO mission. And over that period of time, we saw Russia attempt to disrupt um, the U.S. and NATO activities there nothing as egregious or as shocking as offering bounties on the heads of individual U.S. soldiers. So this is behavior that is well beyond the pale. And I I will tell you this, if if that had occurred on my watch as a four-star officer, if I saw that intelligence, I would have immediately sent a flare up to my boss, the Secretary of Defense at the time, Robert Gates. And I assure you, He would have been on the phone to the president in one minute saying, we are seeing this. This demands the strongest possible response. And it's inexplicable to me why we have not responded to this uh, serious uh, act of real hostility from the Russian Federation. So, Admiral, is there any explanation for why we haven't? Is it possible, for example, that the president and vice president were not told about it or were not told sufficiently urgently enough for them to take it seriously? It's hard to believe that. Um, Now, let's be uh, blunt about it. The president is not um, an avid consumer of intelligence. He's not a deep reader by all accounts. Uh, He's sort of sporadic in his attention to these briefs. I suppose it's conceivable that it was presented to him, and I I don't see anybody denying that it was presented to him, at least in the written form of the presidential daily brief. Um, It's conceivable, I suppose, that he didn't focus on it, but I just can't imagine a president of the United States being told that our troops were being Uh, effectively have a bullseye painted on them and would not respond in the very strongest terms possible. If it was not given to him, I think there are some hard questions to be asked about the intelligence community, why they did not uh, drive it directly at the president. That's why I'm I'm pleased to see, Bonnie, that the Congress is uh, getting involved. We need to know the facts. Uh, When was it presented? If it was presented, what was the president's response? Why have we done nothing to date? Those are good questions for oversight from the Congress. I think we'll see that in the next few days. Mm. So, Admiral, we're starting to see more and more news of this um, in columns like the one you uh, you wrote today uh, about this issue. It's becoming much more apparent that people are paying attention to it. What do you believe should be an appropriate response here by the United States, if, in fact, there will be one? 
Yeah, Paul, if these reports are true, and I think we're going to find that they are, this thing has all the fingerprints of the GRU, which is the very shadowy, darkest uh, portion of the Russian intelligence network. And, of course, Russia is dominated by Vladimir Putin, a former KGB spymaster. So what we ought to say to ourselves is, what comes next? What do we do next? I would, I would basket our response as follows. Diplomatically, we should expel the Russian ambassador if this is true. Um, they will probably expel the U.S. ambassador, but we need to send the strongest diplomatic signal we can. Secondly, on the military side, we ought to cease all talk of withdrawing 10,000 troops from Europe. You may have seen those reports yep. just a few weeks ago. That would be a big mistake. We ought to more aggressively operate our ships up in the Black Sea, for example, demonstrating militarily our displeasure with us. And economically, we ought to look at another round of sanctions. And I think it's probably time to look at personal sanctions applied to Vladimir Putin, Sergei Lavrov, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Shuigen, the Minister of Defense. Um, any of them almost certainly would have been aware of this and countenanced it. And I think that we need to send the strongest possible signal that it's unacceptable behavior. Finally, we ought to be circling our allies together. Uh, and while we ought to protect sources and methods of this intelligence, Paul, we need to uh, publicly say what we know so that our allies can join us in responding to this behavior. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. This is intelligence gathered in 2019 and 2020. That's this year. And it was derived in part from debriefings of captured Taliban militants. And officials are telling the AP as well that this intelligence and these operatives were gathered from opposite ends of the country and from separate tribes. So it does seem like it's not just, you know, one potential, you know, mischievous Taliban operative telling a lie. There was definitely at least more than one instance of this and and in different places. If that's the case, then, Admiral, I mean, post-election, is there any, you know, any justice for for the American people and for people who are serving, you know, for the United States of America, if this had been the case during a previous presidency? Indeed, um, Bonnie, and you put your finger on an important point here that is not getting a lot of discussion, which is what does this do to the peace process in Afghanistan? And what does this tell us about the Taliban with whom we are negotiating a peace agreement, uh, trying to reduce the troop strength there even further? Um, Does this tell us that we can trust the Taliban? I don't think so. And in fact, one of the tippers in the intelligence that's been at least reported in the press is uh, half a million dollars in U.S. cash. So all of this uh, needs to be examined closely in the context of what's happening in Afghanistan, the reliability of the Taliban. And to your last point, um, in particular, we owe an explanation to the families of those who may have been killed in response to this bounty program. And uh, there are some reports that uh, circle in on a couple of incidents with improvised explosive devices that killed servicemen that may have been part of this bounty program. That's real blood on Russian hands as well as Taliban hands. Admiral Stavridis, always wonderful to speak with you. That is Admiral James Stavridis, retired U.S. Navy Admiral, of course, also former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, we should mention as well. 
As banks and their branches remain shut, consumer trends have had to change. Even if you were the type who didn't want to, say, lodge a cheque online or via your mobile phone or go on and check your balance, you might be now several weeks and months into this pandemic. Let's talk to somebody who knows a lot about pivoting the business to try and cater better to customers. Brendan Coughlin is head of consumer banking at Citizens Bank, and we welcome him now. Brendan, what data can you give us about how consumers are shifting their appetites for services from banks according to what they're doing with your bank? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on and uh, appreciate it. Uh, we're seeing a very dramatic change in consumer behavior. Um, obviously, the move towards digitization and financial services was well earned away pre-COVID, uh, but we're really seeing a, a very dramatic acceleration of those trends. Uh, we had uh, at, at our trough, our branches were down about 50% in walk-in traffic. Now, that's rebounded a bit, uh, but it's uh, now kind of settling in at maybe down 20%. Now, compare that to uh, the ongoing prior COVID trends, which was down about seven to eight percent a year, so more than a doubling of a slowdown in foot traffic. So what's picked up? Our digital activity has picked up more than 25 percent, and really across all different age segments. So we've seen a massive flock to digital banking um, and an acceleration of our consumers' behaviors in uh, banking in multiple channels. So, Brendan, does it suggest that the uh, Citizens Bank and other uh, commercial banks will continue to reduce uh, their branch footprint? Yeah, I think uh, most banks and citizens is, is certainly one of them. Uh, we, we have reduced over the past four years about 14% of our branches, uh, and we've consolidated them where we've had um, duplicative points of presence in our network. We've also taken down the square footage quite a bit from an average of 4,000 square feet to 2,000 square feet, really repositioning them as advice centers versus transactional centers. And uh, I, I see that trend continuing. Um, our customers, if you think about a non-financial services analogy, uh, most all uh, U.S. Uh, consumers got really trained on home delivery for groceries over the past handful of months, and they've sort of learned that convenience, and you find it hard to believe that folks are going to re-enter and go back to the grocery store twice a week. And the same thing is happening in financial services, where out of uh, the forcing function of the pandemic, uh, consumers that were slow adopters to digital have now learned the convenience of digital. and will do their day-to-day transactions uh, that way. Uh, they will still want to use brick and mortar, but much differently. So more of an advice center will come in for life events, not day-to-day cash ch- uh, check cashing and, uh, and such. So we do see the, the reduction of our physical presence uh, reducing over the next handful of years. Mm. So Brendan, talk to us about flows and amounts. Are people depositing? Are people withdrawing? Are they borrowing? Yeah. Um, so consumer borrowing has certainly slowed, um, with the exception of mortgage. Obviously, mortgage refinancing with rates as low as they are right now is really taken off, um, as well as student loan refinancing with rates this low. Those are, those are the, the parts of consumer borrowing that really pick up, and we're seeing an explosion in both of those categories. Um, on the deposit side, Given so many customers have uh, taken um, forbearance, which means they're not making their monthly loan payment, 
combined with the, the effects of the stimulus, we're seeing a lot of inflows in deposits. Now, m- much of that is uh, still sticking around in the banking system, but we are seeing very significant returns to life from our consumer base. So as an example, uh, at the trough of COVID, our debit card spending, we saw a reduction in 35% year over year. That has all but recovered back to normal. It's only down two or three percentage points year over year. And so we're seeing the return of day-to-day spending all the way back to uh, the averages uh, from prior. What we're not seeing is those big ticket spending, travel, vacations, those are still not coming back. And so that money is actually sitting in the banking system and consumer, the savings rate for consumers uh, uh, such has never been as high as it is right now. Brendan, talk to us about some of the the credit quality. We have so many Americans, unfortunately, uh, out of work here, and we're going to get another uh, employment number this Thursday. It will be a grim number once again. What are you seeing in terms of credit quality? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. I would tell you that um, our portfolio uh, of consumer credit has about 7% of our portfolio is in uh, a forbearance status, so they're taking a payment holiday, if you will. 93% is still in their normal um, uh, payment schedules. Uh, the, the customers that are not in forbearance, we have not seen a meaningful spike in delinquency whatsoever. Uh, and so very, very healthy dynamics. When you look at the book that's in forbearance, so the 7% or so, uh, we're seeing some very interesting uh, signals. So 25% or so of that portfolio is still actively making monthly payments, even though they've asked us to go on a payment break. Uh, so we believe that a meaningful portion of that base is uh, using this forbearance as a safety net just in case in this uncertainty of the market. Um, many of those customers will start rolling off their 90-day forbearance here in the, in the coming months, and so we'll have uh, greater levels of insight uh, in terms of right. how many of those folks landed on their feet or if they still need some more support. Hey, Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your input, kind of uh, you know, boots on the ground there with the consumer and consumer lending. Brendan Coughlin, president of Consumer Deposits and Lending at Citizens Bank. They are based in Providence, Rhode Island, giving us some real-time views on kind of what consumers are doing in terms of uh, commercial banking. Obviously, it's all about technology and digitalization, people uh, embracing the technology, embracing the apps, uh, perhaps more so uh, than they ever have. And then the question, what impact will that have on consumer banking going forward? A lot on the president's plate these days when isn't there, but it's particularly hot in the uh, presidential chair, I would imagine, these days. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about what's going on, both coronavirus-wise, national security-wise, and re-election-wise. Wendy Schiller is Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at Brown University. Wendy, welcome. As the virus continues to spread through the states that already reopened, will we ever get a federal response, or has that now passed? Well, Vani, I think that the question of a coordinated federal response, I think that window of opportunity has passed, at least in this phase, because governors have taken upon themselves, they had to, you know, for the last couple of months to do this themselves. Anything from testing, getting PPE equipment, uh, to mandating stay at home and face mask wearing, face covering wearing. So the governors have already used federalism, you know, as maximum as they can, because they felt, as some of them have been quoted as saying, that they had no other choice. So I don't think that there's an opportunity to rein that back in. But certainly as we go into vaccine development and vaccine distribution, I think there the federal government still has a a pretty strong role to play. All right. So, Wendy, is there any reason to have confidence that the federal government 
the Trump administration will play a coordinating, supportive role in the uh, development and ultimately the distribution of a vaccine? You know, this is an interesting thing. Trump, uh, Paul, has had a uh, sort of a love-hate with the pharmaceuticals, right? Trump has been trying to push for lower pharmaceutical pricing. He has since he got into office. He hasn't been particularly successful, but he has made it a part of his agenda. So I think the opportunity to sort of tell the big five, I think there's five big companies developing vaccines, you know, what to do, how to do it, and when to do it, is a moment that Trump may want to seize and try to sort of show he's back in command. But that requires engagement uh, with the president on this issue. And he's just been unwilling to really acknowledge how bad it is. We've seen some signs this week that's changing. Certainly, Vice President Pence wearing a mask while he walked into a room at a podium, took a mask off, put it back on, said everybody should wear a mask, I believe it was yesterday. That's a big turn for the administration. So if Trump can ease his way back into this conversation, negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies on vaccine pricing, in particular, that would be something, uh, I think, to the president's credit. Does he hang in there until Election Day and and beyond in some way, Wendy? I mean, we saw a lot of down-ballot changes uh, recently in in the more local elections, and there's a lot that doesn't bode well for President Trump in the next election. Yes, but the thing is, two things. This is a man who's declared bankruptcy multiple times. He is not a quitter. People thought, you know, when he didn't do that well in the primary season, he might get out. But he's I don't think he wants to leave. I think he wants to wait and see if somebody can beat him. And that's a really up-in-the-air question. You know, it's 50-50. It depends on turnout. depends on swing states. We are seeing you know, some demographics, like uh, voters over the age of 65, for example, have swung towards the Republicans the last couple of presidential elections. They're now basically tied, slight edge to Trump. That's a loss of about seven or eight points advantage. That's a big deal. They turn out in the highest numbers. So if those demographics switch, I think the president has a real challenge. But if he can get them back, um, I think it's still, he's still very competitive. It's four months out, and nobody expected him to win the first time. So why That's should right. Donald Trump in his head think he's going to lose it the second time? So, Wendy, let's, let's go uh, down to uh, the Senate here. Is the Senate, if, if tr- President Trump continues to poll weakly and, uh, and, and perhaps uh, lose the election, perhaps by a you know, significant margin, is the Republican uh, uh, control of the Senate, is that really at risk? It depends how he loses. I think it is at risk for two different scenarios. One is that disaffected Republicans don't want to vote for the Democrats, but they can't bring themselves to vote for Trump. Trump fatigue sets in. They just don't vote. That's a problem in some of the key swing states because they don't get out the door or they don't mail their ballot back in. And so the Republican candidates for Senate don't win and and ride those coattails. So that's one scenario. The other is that there's a personally unpopular Republican candidate, like in Kansas, Kobach wins the primary in August. He's very unpopular in Kansas. They've got a moderate Democrat challenging him. So that's one surprise state. Montana could probably go for Trump, but uh, Steve Bullock might beat Steve Daines. So you can see a scenario, in fact, where the Democrats could take the Senate back, you know, narrow margin, and Trump could still win. He could win in Kansas and win in Montana, but the Republicans could lose the Senate. So the Russia bounty story, Wendy, does that go away like a lot of other stories that, you know, popped up national security-wise over the last couple of years, or is this bigger? Well, Bonnie, we're going to need somebody who's in the Trump administration to say, yes, the president was briefed on this as early as February or March. He knew it was happening. He didn't do anything about it. We haven't had that yet. And A, they said, well, the intelligence wasn't good enough to brief President uh, Trump or Vice President Pence. Now we're hearing that he was given a memo. Did he read the memo? 
certainly it does not help bring back the Russia connection. And with the military right now, it's a very fraught relationship between the president and the military. And the idea that he would let that go, you know, that's something that would be hard to swallow for some other part of the Trump voting base. So I think it's another problem for the president in terms of eroding his core strength, which is not a majority, but it's enough to keep him in the game. And if that starts to go, I think uh, the pillars of senior citizens, uh, the military and disaffected people who are unemployed right now, I think that's just a big battle for the president. He's got to win some of those people back to stay in the game and stay competitive. So, Wendy, former Vice President uh, Biden, uh, we're four months out to the election. He's kept in it. I would say an exceptionally low profile here, and maybe it's by design. What do you think uh, Mr. Biden needs to do over the next four months, or does he just sit back and let the Trump uh, presidency kind of implode upon itself? Yeah, I'm against the conventional wisdom I've been saying uh, uh, um, to you and to other people. You know, he's got to get out of the basement. Biden's in the basement. It's becoming kind of a joke. And I understand that, you know, you can let Trump implode, but that still gives Trump the opportunity to rebound because Trump controls the agenda. He controls the public conversation. It's all about Trump. So what if Trump starts to recalibrate, actually, and do better? Then Biden's scrambling to make his presence known. So I think it's a mistake to stay in the basement. And I think that the problem for the Biden administration is they keep focusing on the competency of the VP choice. They've got to be prepared to run the country. That just reminds people that Biden might make it through his first term. It just reminds people Biden's 77. Mm. So I think that's a mistake, too. You know, focus on strategic electoral importance for the VP, just like always, and start campaigning on an issue. What are you going to do about the economy? What are you going to do about COVID? You know, you let Trump be the bad guy, and, and you know, you benefit from that right now, but that also gives him the opportunity to be the good guy in September, October, if the economy does start to pick up and we do start get a handle on COVID. So I think it's a huge gamble on the, on the part of the Biden campaign. Wendy, 10 seconds. Who's the front runner for VP pick right now for Biden? Uh, the elite gossip is, of course, Kamala Harris. But I think if you go back to basic politics, Val Demings is from a swing state, which is Florida. So mm-hmm. if you go with a woman of color, I think that you still have to go back to the basics if you want to try to win this election. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Always, always great content. We always appreciate it. Wendy Schiller, professor of political science and public policy at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Fonnie, just some great stuff there from Wendy, as always. And there's just so much going on as it relates to this upcoming election. Yeah, interesting to hear her say that Val Demings might be the yeah. topic uh, right now, at least. Of course, uh, you know, there's a little while to go, but at some point we're going to get an announcement. Yeah, it's just amazing here. We're, again, four months after the election. We're hardly uh, talking about it, but that will change, I'm sure. Well, Vani, it seems like, you know, everybody's talking about treatments for this virus and potential vaccines. Uh, that's why I think we're so fortunate to have Sam Fazelli kind of at our beck and call, if you will. Sam Fazelli is one of the top healthcare analysts in the city of London uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. I also understand he has some management responsibilities over there, presumably. Uh, Sam, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's talk about another one of the pharmaceutical companies today in the news in, in Ovio, uh, one of the front runners to come up with a COVID-19 vaccine. What's the news coming out of Innovio? Yeah, hi, Paul. Um, uh, yeah, so we've had a press release today, which I think couldn't be m- more um, limited on actual detail than uh, <laughs> if they tried. Um, the comments that I've seen is, a, is an overall immune response in 94% of the patients. I have no idea what that means. Um, and, and, and you, you, and know, you have a PhD we, in this stuff. 
Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't have a PhD in English literature, in, you know <laughs> what I mean, or at least the English language. Uh, what, what, I, what are the sorts of things that we look for are this number of patients had this amount of antibody in their blood. And frankly, I mean, not to beat them up too much. I mean, the market's already doing that for, for, for us. But the reality is that these things are pretty useless um, unless you present data. Data is, is, is what matters. At the end of the day, you know, remember going back to when Moderna put their press release out. We thought that was uh, economical on detail. So this, this is even this is one, one level higher. Um, and I don't know why, why, what you would read into that. Would you read, therefore, that they haven't got a vaccine that's really that effective? Time will, ha- will tell. We need to see the data. And even if they showed us superb antibody levels in every single patient that was vaccinated, somebody's got to prove eventually that that's protective. And that's where the FDA's commentary come in afterwards. Right. So, Sam, just taking the bigger picture look at things, talk to us about how vaccines actually work. Dr. Fauci said something the other day that was quite interesting to the effect that if anti-vaxxers don't get the vaccine, then it automatically isn't as powerful. Absolutely. So you do need this so-called herd immunity, uh, X level of number of a percentage of patients, people, uh, supposedly 70% is a number, is a magic number, need to be immune to the, um, to the virus for herd immunity to take place. And it's interesting you brought this subject up. We did talk about it a little bit uh, even uh, during the day today with some uh, uh, clients as to what, is, what happens if 25% of the population decide to make the vaccine also a political uh, uh, thing and not take it, whether they're anti-vaxxers or not. Then, uh, then, of course, they are at risk, and the other 75%, so long as they were at that sort of level, will have s- some level of immunity. The problem is if you have a virus that runs around still in 25% of a pretty large population, you continue to give it the opportunity to, to continue to infect, of course, and also to mutate, which is, of course, what we don't want. Yeah, interesting, Sam. So, but there's, I guess the Food and Drug Administration today, I guess, is going to outline some conditions for approving COVID-19 vaccine. What are you expecting to hear from uh, the FDA? Yeah, we'd love to see the detail of that. Some of the headline things that I've seen are kind of make you go back and and think about the the, the 55 different ways you could interpret it. Um, The reality is that it will be a guidance document. A lot of it will come back down to people uh, interacting with the FDA with the data that they've got. But I I would assume from what I've seen and what I've heard that it would not be enough just to show here's my vaccine and 80%, 90%, 100% of patients had an immune response, which is kind of like what the press release we just saw. We need to have parameters, so so, so so-called biomarkers. We need to have parameters as to what is a protective level of an immune response. And maybe the FDA would say you need to prove to us that if you gave this in, a, in, in a, an environment where the virus is running wild, you reduce the percentage of patients who actually contract the disease or don't get severe disease or don't get hospitalized, something like that. Do we know yet if having had the disease makes you automatically immune? Um, you know, the, uh, no, I don't think you can, you can know for certain, but there is a lot of data that keeps suggesting Remember, we've already had some of these coronaviruses around, like MERS and like SARS, the, the original version, and that those patients, those individuals who were infected, did appear to have longer-term immunity. 
So one, the general hope is that that's the case here too. All right, Sam. So again, we were chatting with you yesterday, and we were talking about the the, the report, your research note that came out with that timetable. Um, so is the sense here that there will be a vaccine? Is there, is there a material risk that they just don't find one? Well, look, again, back to that question of what is a vaccine, define. Um, so so let's, look, China has already um, got uh, one company with two vaccines that are reported in a press release. Um, evidence of activity. They, we just had one, another one in the past day or two. Sinopharm, 100% of patients had neutralizing antibodies. Is that enough? We don't know, but at least they did. And then, of course, CanSino, which uses an, a technology not too different to that of Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca and Oxford yep. University, they have just um, been uh, used in the military. So things are moving forward, and there must be data in there that's convincing at least the governments that it's worthwhile vaccinating people. Sam, um, thank but, you for yeah. all your research and yeah. for keeping us up to date, and we will be checking in with you regularly on this because it's what everyone is waiting for. Sam Fazeli is Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we thank him. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.